Welcome, listeners, to the First Things podcast from the editor's desk. This is Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Ross Douthat, columnist at the New York Times, um, Catholic commentator on many matters, and author of a forthcoming book, The Deep Places. And we're just delighted to have you to discuss your article in the October, excuse me, the August-September issue on Catholic political life. And uh, so welcome. Thank, thanks for having me, Rusty. I hope you're doing well. <laughs> I'm struggling along in our, in our, in our times, but uh, reasonably well. Um, well, you know, I just found it, uh, it, was, it was a great piece. A lot of my friends said it became a kind of parlor game to talk about, am I a Catholic populist, integralist, Benedictine, or Tradenista? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the dream of any author, is to force people to wedge all of their complexity into an incredibly narrow schematic that you yourself have devised. So I'm glad that it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the premise of the piece is that the stable center-right, center-left framework for Catholic engagement in public life is really eroded. And and why? Why do you think it, it has eroded? I would say that there are two interrelated reasons. Um, on the one hand, so the argument in the piece, which I, I think is sort of reason, reasonably persuasive, right, is that after the 1960s, after the Second Vatican Council, um, you had this general sense that American Catholicism, Roman Catholicism writ large, um, should have a pretty easy relationship with liberal democracy, um, should not be as skeptical of it as the church was in the 19th century. And so the divisions, the political divisions among American Catholics were between what you might call sort of liberal Catholics in the kind of, you know, Ted Kennedy, Mario Cuomo sense of the term, and a kind of neoconservative Catholicism that in certain ways, you know, people who edited and wrote for first things embodied, um, but then sort of easily encompassed a kind of normal mainstream Republican politicians like Paul Ryan um, or John Boehner. And what's happened over the last 15 or 20 years, I think, is that on the one hand, American liberalism has, you know, it had already secularized and been at its highest reaches sort of dominated by a fairly secular intelligentsia. But in the last generation, that secularization has gone further and it's become a more uncomfortable thing, I think, than it was in the days of, of Mario as opposed to Andrew Cuomo to be, to be a serious practicing Catholic who feels really comfortable with what liberalism is and where it's going. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, you know, we're making this compromise on abortion where you know, we're going to be personally opposed to abortion, but we're going to say we're not imposing that in law. Um, 
this the sheer number of shifts in liberalism on issues related to sex and sexuality, issues related to euthanasia uh, and human dignity and so on, and ultimately the liberty of the church itself, right? The fact that parts of American liberalism don't think that Catholic adoption agencies should be allowed to operate in blue states and so on. That's that's created some real pressure, I think, on that that model of Catholic political engagement. Um, and then on the right, you have this sense that sort of standard issue conservative or neoconservative Catholicism has failed politically and culturally, um, mm. failed to achieve its goal of, in effect, you know, arresting or limiting the secularization of American life, the advance of um, certain forms of secular individualism, uh, more recently, the sort of, you know, quasi-religious side of progressivism, the kind of post-Protestant spirituality of wokeness, that that whatever whatever conservative Catholic politicians were doing, whatever kind of agenda they were pursuing, was insufficient to to sort of hold back these changes, hold back this tide. And meanwhile, um, sort of the, the Republican Party committed egregious blunders like, you know, in hindsight, the invasion of Iraq, um, the sort of bipartisan opening to China that ended up hollowing out part of America's industrial base, which were not, you know, exactly matters of culture war debate, but which ended up also affecting the shape of American society, the place of religion within it. Um, and so in all of these ways, the conservative Catholicism that animated supporters of George W. Bush is seen by a lot of younger Trump era and post-Trump era conservative Catholics as a failure. Um, and so on both fronts, then there's a sort of sense that there's a need for new thinking and new ideas, or in some cases, old thinking and old ideas, 19th century ideas or 16th century ideas. <laughs> um, and that, so that's that's sort of how we ended up with, well, with the debates that I'm trying to sketch out in the piece. So, so there's a, there are things that are specific to our religious commitments that revolve around social conservatism. I think you're right. We kind of look back at the Bush um, presidency, and it didn't. It didn't. It seemed very auspicious, you know, compassionate conservatism, et cetera, et cetera. But it didn't seem to amount to anything. By the time we got to two thousand and eight, the country had become, you know, less, not more, influenced by Christian ideas. But but you're adverting to also this larger phenomenon, which is left, right, secular, religious. There's a growing sense that the political truisms of the last generation or two are no longer very functional. So it's not just in the Catholic world that we're getting all this rethinking, but whether it's Jacobin or, you know, left, secular left, woke stuff is also casting doubt. There are many baby boomer center left people who feel as though, whoa, wait a minute, what happened to the young people? They're they no longer believe what we believe. Yes. Well, there's there's a dynamic. Yeah, you see, you see this dynamic all over, right? Where, you know, among among conservative Catholics, and not just Catholics, but conservative religious people in general, they look at sort of the secularization of American society, the collapsing birth rate, the you know, porn addled anomie, and say, 
well, if the pol- you know, if conservative politics as we know it brought us to this place, of what use is conservative politics? Um, but then the the sort of liberal and left wing version of that looks at Donald Trump getting elected president and says, if the center left as we knew it, if Hillary Clinton style liberalism brought us to you know Donald Trump, an authoritarian maniac in the White House, of what use is your center left politics? So this dynamic, you know, takes it. It takes various forms. I do think everyone is sort of participating in different ways in this sense of, well, what in my last book I called decadence, but this sense that sort of the modern liberal project has achieved certain things, but also feels somewhat exhausted and unhappy. Um, And but every path out of where we are feels a bit like a dead end. All right. So there's a kind of dissatisfaction with um the standard political ideas on offer. But in your piece, you you really drill down and note that one reason for the erosion of this old paradigm is institutional decline. That it it, it kind of makes sense that what First Things was founded to promote in 1990 would become more tenuous in 2011 if the church is just a fundamentally a weaker institution than it was in 1990. Yes. Yes. I think that's, and that's, that's sort of the backdrop that all, you know, all of the intellectuals arguing about, you know, should the church become, or should Catholic political thought become more anti-liberal or post-liberal? Should it become more anti-capitalist? Should it become more, quietist, you know, more focused on more, you know, sort of private institution building. All all of these arguments are taking place against a backdrop of a church that is getting weaker and I think is likely to continue getting weaker on a scale that maybe not all Catholics quite realize as yet, that like the next 20 or 25 years in the American church will be a period of very difficult consolidation, parish closures, school closures, and so on, even beyond what in the age of the sex abuse scandal um, people people have become accustomed to, um, which, you know, is both, it both makes it a very fertile time to have sort of new ideas and new conceptions, right, <laughs> of what, because, you know, what better time than a period of, you know, decline and existing models not working to think anew. Um, but at the same time, all the, the really ambitious side of the new thinking, right, the people who are like, all right, you know, the ch- in this period of, you know, anomy and disillusionment, the church is going to step in and supply, you know, the kind of grounding that American culture as a whole really needs, those ambitions have to reckon with the fact that the church in 2021 is much weaker than it's been in, uh, you know, 70 years, if not a century, and is likely to get institutionally weaker over the next generation. Yeah. I mean, the founder of First Things, Richard John Newhouse, I, he certainly did believe that we were an essentially religious society. And as the church recedes, in numbers, that becomes a more difficult premise to to assume, and I, I agree. But to this notion of institution, well, or that we're a, or that we're a Christian, definitely a Christian society, right? I mean, I think the the question of what comes in as institutional religion recedes is a really open and, and 
complex one, right? And I sort of go back and forth. I, I use the term a term like secularization to describe what's happened in American society because it's sort of the most commonly understood term for the decline of Christianity. But if you look at sort of you know <laughs> what people are actually doing with astrology and witchcraft and essential oils and and everything else, it's an open question whether thinking of it as a secular and post-religious society fully makes sense. Yeah, Josh Mitchell, I think, has argued pretty powerfully that the woke revolution has very, very strong religious overtones and that it's a it's a kind of debased form of Christianity, sort of guilt without redemption. Um, and, and and so right, I do I do agree. So both in terms of what people actually do they're not really post-religious, although they're certainly no longer um, influenced by institutional Christianity. <laughs> um, so I think that's right. But if if it's institutional decline of the church, and I, I, I agree with you on that, I would say I would use terms like fragmentation and as much as decline, because I think the church is also, as it you, you document in your piece, the, the actual raw numbers baptisms, marriages, and so forth, hugely important. But also the, um, I don't think, I think the church increasingly has a difficult time sort of speaking um, in, a, in one voice, and that's also a factor. But I'm wondering, you, you have your four categories, you know, populist. I would say the populist, and you rank, you, you cast me in that crowd, and I think rightly so. And then Elizabeth Brunig as a Tradnista figure, I would say the populists and the Tradnistas are the most closely linked to act, act current political options. And so if it's in and that, presumably, it, you need some sort of mu voter muscle to get political results, whereas the Benedictines and the Interregalists seem the ones who are the least dependent upon the churches having this historic political significance and influence. So maybe they benefit from institutional client. Benefit, wrong word. Maybe they, their, their star rises among young Catholics because it it's a way of thinking about being a Catholic and making a difference in an environment where, you know, the Cardinal Archbishop of New York doesn't actually carry any political weight. I think that's definitely true of the the Benedictines and just for for listeners who have not who are not intimately familiar <laughs> with the taxonomy, I should say. No, I think everybody. Every this. right. Well, every, hopefully, everyone who listens to this podcast is you know a thrice a all thrice the, all the cool, oversubscriber. All the cool, all the cool kids. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the, I'm using cool the term kids. Benedictine to borrow from Rod Dreher's famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, book, The Benedict Option, <laughs> um, and that that perspective, I think, definitely becomes more powerful in all its various forms with both sort of weaknesses, apparent weakness in official institutional Catholicism and apparent weakness in religious conservatism's political power and political muscle, right? So the Benedict Option was the hot book of the late Obama years when it seemed like the Democrats would likely control the presidency and with it the judiciary for some extended period of time conservatives, religious conservatives had lost a series of legal battles and were sort of dependent on the kindness of Elena Kagan for their institution's survival. Um, and so all you could do was sort of figure out ways to institution build 
on your own outside of politics. And then, of course, Trump comes along and shows that, you know, more things are possible in American politics than some of us in punditry imagined a few years before. And so suddenly the Benedictine option becomes less appealing and the idea of sort of direct, you know, direct political work becomes more so. The integralists, I think, are uh, like the Benedictines, they're more distant from practical politics, right? I think in, in my categories, the populists are the closest to practical politics. They just want to do some version of what Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance and Marco Rubio want to do with the Republican Party, where it's a more sort of, you know, economically populist and nationalist force combined with continued social conservatism. And they aren't, they're the, they're the closest for all that they have sort of broken with, you know, neoconservatism in certain ways. They're still the closest to the George W. Bush era in certain ways, right? You know, it's it's a sort of, it basically says compassionate conservatism didn't work because it was economically naive, but the impulse to have a more centrist Catholic inflected economic policy was correct, right? So that's, that's where they are. Then the Tradonistas or the left caths, as they probably prefer to be called, um, have sort of a definite political program in the form of Bernie Sanders socialism. Um, but it's, they, they're a much, much weaker player within the left-wing coalition than the populists would be within the right-wing coalition. Well, they have less, so that, there are less voters that, that they represent. I mean, first they, things... They represent, or they represent fewer organized voters, right? I think within the Hispanic portions of the Democratic Party, there's sort of the beginnings of what you could imagine as a kind of left-cath block. Um, but there's... There's no connection between that right now, between the sort of, you know, re religious Hispanic Democrats and the elite reaches of the Democratic Party. And it's not clear that there's a way to bridge to bridge that. Then the Benedictines, as I've said, are, yeah, are sort of extra political or apolitical or um, then the integralists, who knows, right? The, the integralists are in certain ways making these sort of radical claims about, you know, the kind of state and society we should have that seem like they could only be actualized in, you know, a totally different environment, you know, in 50 years when various collapses and changes have happened. At the same time, they're also very happy to connect themselves to real world politics and claim vindication in real world politics. And the enthusiasm, their enthusiasm for certain aspects of populism or, you know, what happens in Poland and Hungary and so on suggests you know, a very clear desire to be more than a kind of fantasy, fantasy politics. Um, well, I think that part of their influence, though, I think is that, as you point out in your piece, although mass Catholicism may be in decline, that uh, Catholicism actually has a bewitching allure for a lot of conservative intellectuals. And so it may actually strengthen as an influence on the intellectual right. And also, I think integralism chimes the most clearly with globalization and the shift from a de democratic polity to a kind of technocratic oligarchic society, which I think is actually increasingly the accurate way to describe American society today. I mean, it's not only that, right. but it's a, it's that's a, a, it's, 
You want a you want a Fauci a Fauci yes. of one's own, and so right. I I look at that and think, wow. I mean, the Benedictines because in the time of institutional transformation of the Catholic Church decline and raw numbers, this question about how we renew at the grassroots level becomes ext- extremely urgent. The Benedictines have a lot to say about that. And the interreglas, if we do, if I fail as a populist, uh, and we do actually in the next 20 years have a much more globalized technocratic elite that largely dominates the decision-making process of governance, then Adrian Vermeule starts to look like, you know, he was betting on the right horse. Yes. I mean, it may not succeed. Well, in well this sense. is the th- that was well. It seems to me always that there are sort of two versions of the Adrian Vermeule perspective. Um, one of which has been published uh, in, for, in first things itself um, back back in the days before uh, some, I think, some unpleasantnesses. <laughs> but but you know, this sort of argument that essentially in a world of this kind of technocratic oligarchy and so on. Christians, serious Christians are obliged to think of themselves in the mode of a kind of Daniel or an Esther, right? Sort of operating in good faith within these structures, judicial, administrative, and so on, um, trying to protect the interests of their co-religionists wherever possible, trying to steer this sort of non-Christian empire in the best possible direction, um, without imagining that tomorrow you're going to, you know, sort of, to push the analogy, Judaize the entire Persian Empire, right? That's that's one version. But then there's the sort of, you know, there's the Adrian Vermeule of Twitter.com, perhaps, <laughs> for whom, you know, any political triumph for a Viktor Orban or, you know, the, the conservative parties in Poland and so on is a sign that, in fact, the counter-revolution or the next revolution is coming very fast, and you aren't in Esther and Daniel territory anymore. You're in territory where, I guess, the Maccabees are going to take over the the Persian bureaucracy. I, I'm really the, the analogy is collapsing under me as I right. as I use it. But I but I do think I think integralism as a mode of analysis moves back and forth between those two ideas. On the one hand, this sort of idea that you know we have a long-term vision of sort of, you know, integration from within. Uh, but it's a very long-term vision. And in the meantime, you just sort of do the best you can within these non-Christian structures and accept their existence and purposes versus this sort of more, you know, you know, sort of strictly speaking, reactionary vision of sudden right-wing revolution or sudden Catholic revolution taking over the administrative state by 2037 or something. <laughs> No, I agree. There is a tension there. Well, as we draw to a close, I want to put you on the spot. You end the piece evoking two options. And uh, if I could sort of do a riff on Alistair McIntyre, one option is a no doubt very different John Courtney Murray, which in effect is a kind of liberalism that's in the 21st century redefined and in some sense renewed by these current challenges. And the other option is a post-liberal or an after-liberalism future. Maybe you think sort of the thing that Pat Deneen wants and so on. So what what does Russ Douthat want? Do you have a preference here in, of these futures? I mean, I, I think that I'm 
identified to the extent that I identify with any of my own analytic descriptions <laughs> with, with the populists too, um, which means that I, I think that I, well, you could tell from my, what I just said to you about the integralists, I think that I find the sort of Daniel and Esther scenario more plausible than the Maccabean revolution scenario in the, in the near term. Um, and as, as long as that's the case, I am still operating within the horizons and frameworks of liberalism, mm -hmm. which on Twitter is what Professor Vermeule does not like about, about my columns, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that seems to me the more realistic mode of politics. Um, I think that in general, the integralist and, and also radical sort of radical left cath critiques of liberalism score tons of points um, without fully reckoning with some of the reasons why liberalism has up till now triumphed over both <laughs> reaction and radicalism. Um, and I, I to, to get basically to get to a post, a truly post liberal world um, that I would be interested in inhabiting I would want the post-liberals to reckon more fully with what, with the liberal, the original liberal critique of the ancien regime, I guess you could say, right? Sort of the scale of, on the one hand, some of the cruelties and corruptions involved in church-state integration. Um, and on the other hand, just the extent to which in a lot of, in, in basically every context where that kind of integration was attempted to be sustained deep into the 20th century, it ended sort of crumbling to dust a bit in the way that I think, I think Peter Hitchens in his review of the Franco biography for right. first things got, mm -hmm. got at that a little bit. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, of course the, the, uh, you know, that's the, the integralist view those kind of arguments as themselves ceding too much ground to liberalism and participating maybe in black legends and so on. And I don't, I don't think I'm into black legends, but I, I do, when I look at post-liberalism, I see something that has a critique, but doesn't yet have a vision of a society that I would actually want to live in. And as long as that's the case, I suppose I'm still operating as a sort of non-liberal within liberalism, trying to offer liberalism something constructive to make itself more friendly to, well, I mean, fundamentally to what I think is the truth about the universe, which is, you know, sort of the, the Christian, the Christian and theistic world picture. Um, so yeah, I'm, I mean, I think, or to be really simple, I'm basically a populist, except I wasn't, I wasn't as up for Trumpism as most of the other populists were. <laughs> that's, that's the crudest way of putting it. Well, thanks for your time. And uh, I look forward to reading the deep places and uh a and very different a very different kind of book from from this this kind of analysis but maybe with some implications for these debates too well very good well what could you tell listeners what's what it's about the, the, it's just a mostly a memoir about my experience with um chronic lyme disease and being really sick with a disease that is medically contested and very peculiar and requires doing all sorts of strange things to get better uh, so there's probably something in there that has implications for how we think about 
liberal modernity and its critics, um, but more in the sort of biomedical administrative zone than in the zone of political philosophy. Well, that reminds me of the, you have a kind of fun throwaway line about uh, Catholic weirdos on the right. And I, I remember underlining that thinking we, we are living in an age where it's increasingly difficult not to be a weirdo. And that that's a, that's a, one of the symptoms of our, of our, the erosion of a kind of stable center of society. Yes. Well, you became and it, a but, medical but, weirdo. But in fairness, you know, I think, I think what, since we all, but especially conservatives spend a lot of time lamenting that the sort of dissolutions and, um, and, um, what was the word you used earlier? Sort of not dislocation, but breakdown, fragmentation. fragmentation, right? The sort of fragmentations that have brought us, have brought us to this point, um, the absence of sort of a unified world picture. And, you know, I share that, that lament, but it is also the case that the world is an extremely weird and strange place. And in some ways, a sort of fragmented society full of weirdos can get you closer <laughs> to the truth of the world's deep weirdness than, certain forms of sort of overconfident consensus so very well said that's my note of of modest optimism for our weird future (laughs) thanks thanks a lot absolutely thanks for having me rusty it was fun